there are a few scenes in Exodus that are really, really famous. Um, you may be familiar with them even if you've never read the book. Um, Moses, as a baby, being placed in a basket and floating down the Nile River. Um, Moses in the burning bush in the desert. Uh, the parting and crossing of the Red Sea, which we're going to get to really soon. Uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And also, the scene that we're looking at tonight, the Ten Plagues. The ten plagues that God sends against Egypt contain some of the most miraculous and fantastical and like terrifying and scary moments of this book. Uh, the scenes can be really troubling for modern readers like us. And we can get really bent out of shape about the historicity of all this uh, and the implications of what God is like. To our modern eyes, God can seem pretty monstrous in what we're going to read tonight. But there's a lot more going on under the surface of the 10 plagues that's really easy for us to miss today. Uh, but it would have been blatantly obvious and unambiguous to the original audience. And so we're going to explore what is actually going on in the 10 plagues in our time tonight. Uh, but first, <clears throat> I want to actually read this entire portion of the story for you from start to finish. I'm not going to stop at any point in between. Uh, it's about four chapters long. But um, I timed it out because I was kind of scared of reading this much scripture back to back. And it's only going to take five or six minutes. So don't worry. Uh, they're short chapters. But I think it's important for us to be all be on the same page as far as what we're talking about. And this is the best way for us to get on the same page is for me to just read it to you. Uh, so I'm going to read Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 11, which is only 10 verses because, again, they're not very long. Um, so if you have your Bible with you and you want to get, out and get it out and follow along, that's great. Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 14. It's a lot of words. So I'm actually going to take a break from what I've been doing this series, and I'm not going to put them up on the screen. Um, more than you worrying about uh, trying to catch up with the slides that are going on up here, I just want you to listen to the story. So do whatever you need to do to get comfortable and listen. Uh, you've heard me say many times before that I often have to close my eyes so I can picture what I'm hearing in my head so that I actually pay attention because otherwise I daydream about anything that I have to do the rest of the week. Um, so feel free to do whatever helps you. If it's closing your eyes, that's great. Uh, but get comfy and get ready because <laughs> it's about to get weird. All right. Exodus chapter 7 starting at verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, who, if you remember, is Moses' brother, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. All the water has changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take, did not even 
take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink water from the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. This gets really repetitive, saying the same thing to Pharaoh every single time. If you refuse to let them go, this time I'm going to send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, in your bedroom, and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people, into your ovens and kneading troughs. Which sounds disgusting. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hands over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. I lied. I am going to pause right here. It's really interesting to note that Pharaoh's magicians can also make all the frogs appear, but they can't get them to go away. (laughs) So Pharaoh's like, hey guys, come back and fix all of this. And this is the first time he's starting to relent. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave it to the honor, I leave you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, I would have said right this instant, but that's fine. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will only remain in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand and the staff was struck, uh, the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust through the land of Egypt became gnats. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord said. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they might worship me. If you don't let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and all your people in your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am In this land, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. So this is the first plague where it's only going to affect the Egyptians and not the Hebrews. And that kind of persists throughout. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of the officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to to your God here in the land. But Moses said, that wouldn't be right. The sacrifices we offer to the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord and tomorrow the flies will leave Uh, Pharaoh and his officials and his people. 
Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not deceitfully act again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left, and the, the Pharaoh and his officials, not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of God will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, camels, and on your cattle, your sheep, and your goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow I will do this on the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become a fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took the soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh Moses tossed it in the air and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrew says, let my people go so that they might worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you with you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down on the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree the only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, My bad, this time I've sinned. He said to them, The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I've gone out of the city, I will spread my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. The flax and barley were destroyed since the, head, since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Random fact that they're giving us, but that's going to be important later. 
Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread his hands out towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed many signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they might worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land until now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, what is wrong with you? How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who is going. Moses answered, we will go out with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, and with all our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children. The Lord will be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. So Moses says, we're all going. And, Mo and Pharaoh's like, nope, just, just the men can go. Deal? And uh, then Moses and Aaron are driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so locusts swarm over the land, devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land that, that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts and invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit of the trees, nothing green remained on a tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Guys, I messed up. I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God and make this deadly plague go away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind so a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea, blew through. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock has to go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. 
Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's fart. heart. <laughs> Dang it. I got all the way through it without saying Pharaoh's fart. Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. That took longer than six minutes. Sorry. Well, I'm not sorry. I didn't write it. But here's what happens. Basically, God keeps doing all these crazy things, right? To Pharaoh and his people. And Pharaoh slowly is like relenting. He's like, okay, you guys can go. Just kidding. Okay, uh, just the men can go. Just kidding. Okay, uh, all the people can go, but the, you have to leave your stuff behind so that I know you're coming back. And then just kidding. And then finally, he's like, fine, get out of here. Just go. Just kidding. This whole time, the plagues are getting worse and worse. And they're going through these sequences of not no longer affecting everyone, just affecting the Egyptians. Everyone else in Egypt is like, get these people out of here. We have nothing left. And Pharaoh still will not let them go. This story about the plagues has thrown people for a loop for centuries. People get all bent out of shape and argue about whether this really happened or not, which I can certainly understand. Um, There's questions of, is this all made up? Or did something like this happen, but it's embellished? Or, or is this an exact literal description of what happened? Some even take it so far to try, try to find naturalistic explanations for these plagues uh, that are described here and suggest that if these series of natural disasters happen, uh, natural disasters that are plausible in Egypt at this time, if they all happened at the same time, there could conceivably, you could get the sequence of events that could be understood as the plagues in Exodus which is interesting, and they make a pretty compelling case uh, for this for the first six. But after that, it kind of loses steam. But I think all of this misses the point. I think trying to force this, this story that's written, or at least set in the 12th or 13th century BC, trying to force that through the lens of the 21st century is just going to be a mess. It's a big mistake. Trying to find naturalistic explanations for these things misses the point. Arguing and getting hung up on about whether or not these things really happened misses the point. Pretty much all scholars across the spectrum believe that and agree that the book of Exodus isn't meant to be a perfect, exact recount of history. It's not like getting a videotape uh, for a documentary. I believe Exodus, the Exodus story, is rooted in history. Uh, but we know that, that creative licenses are taken in this story to create a well-crafted and exciting and memorable and meaningful story. 
And these scenes of the plagues are no different. We can see creative licenses being taken here. And I can, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Uh, you probably didn't pick up on this because I, well, maybe you did. I have never seen this before in the, any of the times that I've read this book until studying for this week. But the plagues aren't presented in a linear, sequential, just random ordering of things that happen. They're presented, the first nine are presented in three cycles of three plagues. Each cycle follows the same structure. And the plagues intensify, each one of the three intensifies within each cycle, and each cycle intensifies on the last, and culminating with the devastating 10th plague. So for instance, the first plague of each cycle, so one, four, and seven, each start with Moses being told to get up early in the morning, go confront Pharaoh. Uh, in the first two, one and four, it's go confront Pharaoh while he's at the Nile River. Then Moses gives him a warning that if he, doesn't do, if he doesn't let the people go, something bad will happen. Pharaoh doesn't listen. That bad thing happens. The next plagues in the cycle, two, five, and eight, begin with Moses being told just to appear before Pharaoh. There's no time or place given. But he again warns him, if you don't let my people go, something bad is going to happen. And when he doesn't let them go, something bad happens. Then the last three plagues, uh, three, six, and nine, have no warnings at all. There's no time of day given. There's zero warning. They just happen. Pharaoh hasn't listened to any of the previous things, so God just makes these plagues, the gnats, uh, the boils, and darkness just happen. So the first nine plagues are, are presented to us in a very creative pattern of three cycles of three plagues, which is a very intentional decision. It's a rhetorical device. It's a storytelling decision meant to make it easier to tell, make it easier to remember, and to ratchet up the intensity. So if there's tension, intention behind the organization and the structure of how the plagues are presented to us, if it's not just some random sequence of terrible things, but a deeper purpose and meaning is being conveyed here, then perhaps the plagues themselves are not just a random collection of 10 terrible things that can happen, but instead convey a deeper meaning as well. But before we explore that, there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind, uh, specifically about Israel's beliefs at this point in their history. Judaism is a monotheistic religion, right? That means they believe that there is only one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Egypt at this time is polytheistic, which means they believe in and worship many gods. Israel's belief, Judaism, develops into being monotheistic, but they don't start out that way. At this point in Israel's history, during the Exodus, they don't practice monotheism. They practice something called monolatry, which is monolatry, which is like idolatry, which means they worship one. So they believe that there are many gods, but they only worship one God. They believe that their God, Yahweh, is the most powerful God and so he's the only one that they worship. Egypt has a plethora of gods, including Pharaoh, who's thought to be a god, whom they all worship for various things. Israel believes that Egypt's gods are real, okay? They just believe their god is better. On top of this, at this time in, in the world, especially in the ancient Near East, conflicts between nations were, were, uh, weren't just seen to be conflicts between two geopol geopolitical entities, but also between the gods of those nations. 
So when your nation went to battle against another nation, the thought was that your battle here on earth was you just acting out the battle between your gods and their gods. So if your nation won, that meant that your gods beat their gods. If you lost, it meant that their gods beat your gods. Okay? The plagues in this story of Exodus are God attacking the different gods of the Egyptian pantheon. In order for Israel to be free, God has to defeat the gods of Egypt. These align really well for the most point when you look at them <laughs> this way. Uh, for, some it's, for some of the plagues, it's hard to tell specifically what God uh, is supposed to be in mind because lots of the Egyptian gods had overlapping responsibilities, which kind of is just the case with any uh, polytheistic pantheon of gods in any culture. But it's, so it's hard to say exactly for some of these, but for a few, it's really obvious. Uh, I'll give you some examples. The first plague, the Nile turning into blood, is supposed to be an attack against uh, Happy, H-A-P-I, or Hopi, who's the Nile god, who's in charge of the yearly overflow of the Nile, which basically sustained all life in Egypt. The water turning into blood is, at least temporarily, is a sign that God has defeated Hopi. The second plague, frogs, is a, a an attack on the goddess Heket, who was the goddess of childbirth. Uh, she was often depicted with the head of a frog. It's important, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but we read uh, when, when God gets rid of this plague, the frogs don't just disappear, they die, and they have to pile them up while they rot. This is the goddess of childbirth. This is the god, goddess that's supposed to be in charge of reproduction and life, and God has just defeated her. So much so that even her, the symbol of her doesn't just disappear. They have to watch the symbol of their God that gives life die and rot away. The third uh, plague, gnats. The fourth plague, flies. And the fifth plague, all the livestock dying, uh, are an attack on Hathor, which is the sky goddess who is depicted as a cow. The fifth plague could also be an attack on um, the god Apis. Apis, I'm not sure how to say some of these which is the god of fertility, which is depicted as a bull, could also be both of those gods in mind. When all the livestock die, God has just killed those two gods, or at least defeated those two gods. Uh, seven, hail and eight, locusts, are <laughs> an attack on the god Min. This one is really, really interesting, and that detail that I told you to remember comes in play here. Min is the god of vegetation and, and the protector of crops. There's a big annual festival every year called the Coming Out of Min, it happens every year right at the start of the harvest, which is important because if you remember, again, when the hail happens, we're told a really interesting detail. In chapter 9, verse 31, it says, the flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later, which means this hail happened right at the start of the harvest, which is right when this festival for this God is supposed to be happening. So these plagues ruined this God's big party. Nine, the plague of darkness is an attack on Ra, the god of the sun. Finally, the tenth plague, the death of all firstborn, was directed against Osiris, the judge of the dead. He's a really big deal for a few reasons. One, he's one of the high gods, and he's actually responsible for uh, many of the other gods, including several we just mentioned. And he's the patron deity of Pharaoh. So when Osiris is conquered, it's game over. That's it. There's no one left. So these series of plagues, it's like 
sort of like watching a video game and God is working his way up through the gods of Egypt to the big bad guy boss who's Osiris and even he falls. God is proving that he is stronger than all the gods of Egypt. Uh, This is even said really explicitly in what we're going to read next week, where God basically says the whole reason for all the plagues, especially the 10th plague, is him, quote, bringing judgment to the gods of Egypt. He just explicitly says it. I'm doing all this to show you that I'm stronger than all the gods of Egypt. That's the whole point of the plagues. When Moses first shows up in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh writes him off and says, I have no idea who your God is. I've never heard of that person before. Why should I listen to them go away? And after all this, now Pharaoh knows who Moses' God is, right? God proves his strength and his power by decimating the Egyptian pantheon. God proves that he alone is worth worshiping. That's what's going on here. And that's really easy for us to miss today, but it would have been as plain as day to the original uh, audience for this story. So hopefully that helps you understand the plagues a little bit more, but what on earth are we supposed to do with that today? Right? It's a weird story. And even when you put it in the context of God having to uh, defeat the other gods of a nation that has taken his people captive, it's like, okay, cool. What, what do I do with that? And that's the question that is my job to answer. And I really found that challenging this week. Um, I can really geek out about all the history and about putting things in context and helping them make sense. And it's not always obvious what we're supposed to do with that other than just have a better understanding of what's going on. But the reflection that I came to based on this story is, is I hope you'll forgive me. It's sort of going out on a limb. Uh, What I want us to consider briefly for the rest of the time tonight is not necessarily the original point of the story. As I said, the original point was Yahweh is better than the gods of Egypt. My dad could beat up your dad is basically the point of this story. But I think the underlying point here that we can grapple with is that God is the only one worthy of our worship. So the question I want you to consider that I've been thinking about this week is what gods or idols or objects of worship does God need to destroy for you to believe and follow him to freedom? What are the things that you are putting trust in and and holding back trusting God for? This is a little hard for me to articulate still, so bear with me, but uh, this summer I was confronted with the fact that uh, I really don't trust God for anything good. I believe Jesus when he says, in this world, you will have trouble. I have no problem believing that. (laughs) But I really don't trust when he says, don't worry about anything. God knows what you need, and he's going to give it to you. Something I'm really sensitive to, or, or one of my core fears is being abandoned or betrayed. And at some point, excuse me, I unconsciously decided that, that trusting God Uh, Trusting God to take care of me was too risky. I can count on God when things are really hard. That, for some reason, is easy. But what if I'm not taken care of? What what does that mean about God? What does that mean about me? And so this summer, I really realized that in a lot of ways, I I avoid living because I'm scared of failing and, and don't trust God to help me. And so instead of trusting God, I I seek my own comfort. 
my own safety and my own power to keep myself safe, to keep myself and my family provided for, which often means I just give up and don't risk. I do the safest thing possible. When my gods are safety and stability and self-reliance, when my objects of worship are anything or anyone other than the only person worthy of it, I'm a shell of a human. I'm not the best husband or, or father or friend or pastor or human that I can be, that I've been created to be. So I've been working on making a conscious decision to actively trust God for everything, good and bad, in my life. The great thing is, God is really patient. God is patient enough for, <laughs> to let you experience the death of all of the th other things that you want to pursue in place of him. Power, money, comfort, safety, uh, affection or validation from others, pleasure, whatever it is. None of these things are worthy of our worship. None of these things are going to fulfill us. But we still hold out hope and chase after them. So what would you need to die in order to abandon it and follow God wholeheartedly? That's what I think we walk away from this story tonight with. I'm sure you've thought about that at some point in your life, but how long has it been since you thought about it again? What holds you back from just trusting God? My prayer for all of us is that we will see that thing, that idol, that God defeated by the one true God. And that out of the pain of watching our idols die, we would find the joy of pursuing the only one worthy of our worship, the intimately close and infinitely transcendent ground of all being, Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Will you pray with me? God, throughout the series, I felt like a broken record thanking you for um, stories that feel so strange and odd to us today. Beautiful and terrifying stories that still point us back to you. God, I pray that you would um, help each of us see the gods that we're chasing after. the impotent and powerless gods that we are giving our uh, time and, and affection and love toward giving up our lives for. God, I pray that you would um, show up to each of us in a way that we can't deny and remind us that you are the only one worth worshiping and remind us of how alive and how beautiful life is not perfect, not easy, but full of joy when we are chasing after you and following you to freedom. God, we love you. Amen.